Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the third episode of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, Matt Feinberg and Jackie Unger discuss utilizing strategic partnerships for government contracts. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hello, this is Matt Feinberg, and welcome to Utilizing Strategic Partnerships for Government Contracts. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague, Jackie Unger, who's a partner in Palermo's Government Contracting Practice Group. Hi, Jackie. How you doing? Hi, Matt. I'm good. Glad to be here today. Glad to be with you as well. So, a little bit of a, a little tutorial on what we're going to be talking about today. In this podcast, we're going to talk about strategic partnership opportunities that exist in the government contracting world, why some companies team together, what teaming agreements and opportunities exist, and some important differences between the teaming arrangements that exist in the private sector um, versus what happens in government contracting. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about prime contractor and subcontractor relationships and the general process for creating those relationships. Then we'll discuss some um, alternate teaming opportunities like joint ventures. And finally, we'll give a high-level overview of mentor-protege teaming opportunities that can benefit small businesses and particularly new government contractors, um, but they also offer important benefits to larger, um, more established businesses. So let's jump right into it. First, I want to talk a little bit about how relationships with vendors and subcontractors are a little bit different um, in government contracting. So in the private sector, your company may be hired for a specific project, and you're generally going to perform that project yourself. For instance, uh, you could be providing software development for a specific mobile application, or maybe you're doing some human resources consulting. Your work is often confined within a fairly straightforward scope of work, your area of expertise. But in government contracting, things are often quite different than that. There may be a contract that has a very narrow scope of work, but more often you're going to see a contract that has a wide ranging scope of work that requires you to perform work outside your area of expertise. For instance, an IT contract may include software development, which is your area of expertise, but it might also require you to perform help desk support, IT infrastructure, and uh, third-party product delivery, for instance. For a new company just starting out in government contracting, it can be difficult to win such a contract on your own because you don't have the experience or sometimes the capabilities to cover all of the performance requirements of a given contract. This is where strategic teaming relationships come in. In government contracting, subject, of course, to certain requirements that we're probably not going to touch on very much here, you can enter into agreements with more experienced contractors to help fill the gaps in your performance capabilities. I've always described it a little bit as finding the missing puzzle piece that's been lying on the floor underneath the table. In some procurements, you can use their experience and capabilities to help win the contract as a prime contractor. On others, you can gain experience as a subcontractor that you can later use to win more work as a prime or sell your services to another prime as a more experienced subcontractor. Those contracts then act as a gateway to future work and uh, developing a, a more robust government contracting uh, business. So. How do you do that? First, we talk about this prime contractor, subcontractor relationship. These sorts of teaming arrangements are symbiotic relationships where ideally both parties are getting something out of the relationship. When we talk about these relationships, we're often talking about a prime contractor and a subcontractor. It's a fairly straightforward relationship. In the private sector, I'm sure you're familiar with these types of relationships, um, particularly in, say, the construction industry. You may have a general contractor performing oversight on a construction contract, but you would also expect to see a number of specialist subcontractors underneath that general contractor, a 
plumber, an electrician, a painter. They're, they all have their obligations under that contract. The prime contractor subcontractor relationship in government contracting is somewhat similar to that. The prime contractor is the party ultimately responsible for performance of the entire contract. So on that IT contract I was talking about earlier, not only are they responsible for software development, but they're responsible for providing the services of help desk support, IT infrastructure, and any product delivery. For a new government contractor, subcontracting can be good a good on-ramp to gain experience and learn from a more experienced contractor. You can work as a subcontractor, focusing on that distinct portion of the work where you have experience, let's say software development. And the prime contractor is going to be responsible for either performing the rest of the work or finding other subcontractors who can jump in and assist. In that role, you can take as a subcontractor private sector experience with leadership and project management and use that to successfully perform a government contract with performance assistance of subcontractors or a prime contractor. You may ask, why would a more experienced contractor want to be a subcontractor to a new government contractor? And in this instance, maybe you're just getting into government contracting, um, but you have the capabilities to win a prime contract award. So how are you going to get your own teaming partners to fill in as a subcontractor? For a more experienced contractor, that can be an opportunity to gain access to subcontracts on contracts specifically allocated to small businesses or businesses owned by women, service disabled veterans, or other types of restricted contracts where bidding is only permitted by certain types of companies. That can help keep the lights on as these larger companies or more experienced contractors are competing for work in a larger market. For either company, these relationships can help them gain access to more contracts. For instance, contracts that include performance requirements, one party does not have the capability to meet. So ultimately, this prime contractor, subcontractor relationship can be very beneficial to companies that are just starting out. There are restrictions on the amount of work that a prime contractor has to do. But ultimately, if you can find the right teaming partner, then you can compete for government contracts that otherwise may not have been available to you in the private sector. So what happens when these uh, when you find the, the right teaming partner to work on a contract with you? Jackie, what do you want? Do you want to talk about a little bit about how those relationships start? Sure, Matt. Yeah, I, I think you made a lot of great points there about uh, many of the benefits of the prime and sub relationship and how those may differ in the private sector versus the government contracts uh, world. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the beginning of the process of how do these relationships get started. Well, when entering into these sorts of relationships, the first step in the process is usually signing a non-disclosure agreement between the parties. In order to determine whether two companies will be able to symbiotically work together, sometimes they need to exchange confidential information about the company, its capabilities, its financial status. Um, and certainly, if the parties are going to team together, there will be some exchange of confidential information throughout the course of that relationship. So the first thing that you need to do when you're kicking off this relationship or potential relationship is to ensure the protection of that confidential information by executing a robust non-disclosure agreement so that you aren't putting your proprietary information at risk. You want to make sure that none of the information that you share with this potential teaming partner is uh, potentially going to be made public down the road. So whenever you're starting out looking at teaming with someone else, that first step is you need to make sure you get the NDA in place um, before you get started there. Next step is that you want to make sure that you're doing plenty of due diligence before finalizing any teaming arrangements that you have. You want to make sure that you are uh, making sure that you're, you're teaming with the right partner. So you should avoid the temptation to get on a team at any cost. While there are a lot of benefits to teaming, those benefits are not going to pan out if you're with the wrong partner that you don't work with well. You want to work with a company that is capable, reliable, that's collaborative and flexible, and that's financially sound. 
If you end up with a partner that's lacking proposal support resources and competitive pricing, you might not end up winning any awards, so you won't get that benefit of teaming. If you choose a partner who can't pull their own weight during actual performance, the government might ding you in performance reviews, which would have a major impact on whether you get future contracts. And you could face liability to the customer for their poor performance when you're serving as the prime. So what are some of the factors that you should consider when you're screening prospective teammates? First of all, if the procurement is a set-aside, you know, the type of contract that Matt was talking about being restricted to certain types of businesses, such as small businesses or women-owned small businesses, service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses, 8A set-asides. One major question is whether the prime contractor is eligible to compete on those types of set-asides. Do they qualify as a small business? Are they majority owned by the right type of person, by a woman, by a service-disabled veteran? You need to make sure that those requirements are met so that you'll actually your team will actually be eligible to win that prime award. You should look into whether the company has positive name recognition and an unblemished reputation with the customer. Do you want to make sure that they actually are somebody that has that strong reputation in the industry? Do they have a strong technical capability and a proven record of past performance fulfilling the contract requirements? You want to work with somebody that actually has those capabilities and can perform well on the contract. Are they cost competitive? Do they have proposal support resources and strong infrastructure support? Those are critical to being able to win awards. And that infrastructure back office support is also very helpful during performance down the road. And sometimes can be important pointing out to agencies in your proposal as well that your team has that support. Does your potential partner have the attitude of mutual dependence and benefit? You want to make sure that you're working with someone that you know, wants to work with you and is flexible so that both parties are benefiting from the relationship. You should consider these aspects with any potential teaming partner that approaches your company or that you are interested in approaching. You can look at public data to get a sense of the company's background, including their contract award history. She can look at on usaspending.gov and fpds.gov as a couple examples of where you can look at the contracts and the value of those contracts that have been awarded. You could ask your potential teaming partner for their CPARs, which are their performance reviews that the government provides to them, is required to provide to them on the contracts that they've performed. Those reviews are not publicly available. So you should consider requesting those from your potential teaming partner so you can see how they've performed on their prior contracts. You'd also consider asking your network for feedback on potential teaming partners. Perhaps through your own network, uh, you have resources that know about that teaming partner or could help help you find potential teaming partners. That's a really great point. Um, another thing I wanted to note is that a lot of states and the federal government post lawsuit data on the internet. So for instance, um, I happen to live in the state of Maryland. There's a very detailed history of legal cases against companies. And then the federal government also maintains a database. So you can run quick searches, you know, without spending too much time or energy, just to see if a company has been sued before. And if you see some subcontractors having sued that company before for non-payment or late payment, it's probably a red flag that you should think about during your due diligence. That's a great point, Matt. Thanks. One other point that I wanted to make is if you're relying on your subcontractor's experience to help win the contract, you should pay attention to what the solicitation says to make sure that that subcontractor's past performance will actually be considered by the government as part of the evaluation of proposals. The evaluation of subcontractor experience is not necessarily an evaluation factor that the government will take into consideration. And so you might spend a lot of time uh, finding that teaming partner and putting the proposal together and relying on their capabilities only to find out down the road that the government didn't give much consideration to that. And they didn't put much, if any, value on that teaming partner, which could turn all of that time and effort into a bit of a waste. If it's unclear in the solicitation, you should ask the agency for clarification. And you could even consider a pre-award protest at the GAO to challenge the terms of the solicitation. 
to make sure that you're not wasting that time and that your teaming partners, your potential subcontractors experience will be valued the way that it, it should, or at least that you have clarity on that going into your proposal efforts. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I can't emphasize enough that bidding on government contracts just practically it is an expensive and difficult endeavor. Um, you've got to have a proposal team putting together your portions of the proposal. If you're the prime contractor, you're ultimately responsible for the submission of the proposal itself. And so you might have a team of four or five people putting together a proposal for many hours every week for the three or four weeks or longer before proposals do. It's really important to go through that due diligence to make sure your teaming partner um, is the right partner for you and to make sure that you can use that teaming partner's past performance or experience to help win that contract. The worst thing that could happen is you go through all of that effort, you've invested all of your time and energy, and then the government says that you haven't submitted a, a compliant proposal because you relied entirely on subcontractor performance when it wasn't available under the solicitation. So Jackie makes a really good point. It's important um, to pay attention to the specific solicitation. And if you see some concerns um, or some ambiguities uh, even about what is going to be part of the agency's decision to award a contract, it's great to jump in early and try to get those clarifications. And it doesn't necessarily require a pre-award protest. You could submit questions um, for answering by the agency and they can clarify and give you guidance on how far along the process they are and where the requirements are going to be. So, okay, so let's talk, you've gone through the NDA process, you've got that signed, sealed and delivered, you've gone through due diligence, you've found your, um, your unicorn, the teaming partner that you wanna work with, what next? So the next step in this process is typically a teaming agreement. Teaming agreements are contracts, but they generally set the requirements only for the bidding process. Teaming partners should enter into separate teaming agreements for each specific procurement they wish to pursue. By this point in the process, the companies have determined they want to work together, either through a competitive bid process or through a direct award. And we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of what a direct award is, but as we've talked about a little bit, some of these set-aside programs, um, for instance, the SBA's 8A Business Development Program, allow for the government to issue smaller contracts directly to an 8A program participant that has the capabilities to perform the work, and they can bypass the competitive process under some circumstances. So we're talking about a teaming arrangement that could, for instance, be through a competitive process or it could be a direct award. But the purpose of these teaming agreements is to establish the party's responsibilities for the pursuit of this prime contract. They establish who's going to take the lead on proposal drafting, what information is going to be exchanged between the parties, who is going to contribute what information and personnel to the drafting of the proposal, and how the parties will ultimately negotiate an agreement later if they win the work. There are also a number of other issues that could be brought up in a teaming agreement just to make sure that the parties are on the same page about how everything is going to happen up until proposal submission. Importantly, teaming agreements are not subcontracts, and they don't guarantee that a subcontractor will receive a subcontract if the team wins the work. That seems counterintuitive and certainly frustrating for a subcontractor, but the point of a teaming agreement is to set the party's expectations for their pre-award obligations. When a government contract is awarded, it may ultimately look different from what the parties anticipated or even the government contemplated when original procurement opportunity was posted for bids. The government can amend the solicitation uh, any number of times, can change the scope of work, although usually within reason, or it can determine that evaluations will be conducted in a different way than originally announced. This is one reason that the teaming agreement is often considered unenforceable for post-award obligations. The parties expressly understand that they're going to have to sign some future agreement, typically a subcontract, 
that explains their rights and obligations with regard to the performance of that contract. So there's often no, to use the legal term, meeting of the minds at the time of the teaming agreement as to what those future rights and obligations will be. And so courts typically don't enforce these teaming agreements except for the pre-award obligations of the parties. So ultimately, the risk of entering into a teaming agreement as a subcontractor is that you may be put in, put in considerable effort to submit a proposal to the government under the prime's name. And even if that proposal is successful, if you've done everything you were required to do and you've done it well, such that the government issues a contract to the prime, you may not end up with a subcontract or the subcontract that you think is fair or that you deserve. There are ways to enforce, to strengthen the enforceability of teaming agreements. And we often help clients draft teaming agreements to make them more or less likely to be enforced, depending on the client's role as the prime or the sub. But there's always risk of non-enforceability. So at the beginning of a teaming relationship, you have to weigh how important the contract, the ultimate award of the contract is to you and whether you're willing to take the risk to have a sort of loosely written teaming agreement that might give the prime a way out or to work to make sure that you get a, con a very clear uh, contract and ultimately you have an ability to enforce later down the road. That said, and I don't want to put a dark cloud over all teaming relationships, most teaming arrangements where the team wins the contract result in a subsequent subcontract between the parties. It's also worth noting that pre-award provisions of the teaming agreement often are enforceable, even though the obligation to award a subcontract for a particular work share or for a particular number of um, full-time equivalent employee positions on the contract may not be enforceable. So things like exclusivity, where a prime contractor and a subcontractor agree to team together to the exclusion of all others, um, so the subcontractor can't bid as a subcontractor for another prime on the same work. Um, confidentiality and non-disclosure provisions, um, non-competes and non-solicitation provisions, a potential duty to negotiate in good faith. All of those are enforceable in a teaming agreement because they all are pre-award obligations. Matt, I'd like to jump in here and make one other point about an important consideration for teaming agreements. Meza, we've talked about a lot of new government contractors are small businesses, and they pursue small business set-aside procurements. Well, one rule particular to those small business set-asides to keep in mind when you're working uh, on drafting your teaming agreement is what's called the ostensible subcontractor rule. Under this rule, a prime contractor will be deemed to be affiliated with its subcontractor, which means that in determining size, their revenues will be aggregated to determine whether the prime contractor qualifies as a small business for the procurement. Well, they'll be deemed affiliated if the subcontractor performs the primary and vital requirements of the prime contractor, or the prime contractor is unusually reliant on the subcontractor. So the, the, all of the aspects of the teaming relationship will be considered in determining whether that subcontractor is going to take on one of those roles of potentially performing the primary and vital requirements or being unusually relied upon. SBA would look at the terms of the proposal, the teaming agreements between the parties, and whether the sub is the incumbent contractor and ineligible to submit a proposal on its own, which may indicate that it's teaming with an eligible small business so that the Small business can be the prime and basically the front of the relationship, but then pass the work down to the incumbent subcontractor, the potentially large business who would be doing the core aspects of the work. I do want to point out the rule doesn't apply if the subcontractor is a similarly situated small business, meaning that it has the same small business designation as the prime contractor uh, that the set aside is. Uh, that the contract is set aside for. So if the contract is set aside for small businesses and the prime is a small business and the subcontractor is a small business, then this ostensible subcontractor rule isn't a concern. Um, or if the, the set aside is for woman-owned small businesses and the subcontractor is also a woman-owned small business, then again, this rule wouldn't apply. But because the rule can impact a business's eligibility for a small business set-aside contract, 
this is something to keep in mind as you create your teaming arrangements and think about the scope of work that each party is going to be performing and making sure that on those set-aside contracts that the prime contractor has a sufficient work share and amount of control over the core primary and vital requirements of the work. Yeah, Jackie, those are really great points. Um, I feel like you and I could talk um, for hours about the restrictions on uh, small businesses and small business set-asides. In fact, I think that our colleagues, um, Peter and Megan, are going to talk a little bit later in this series about um, the ins and outs of federal procurement programs for small businesses. Now, they may not go into detail on these issues, but I feel like maybe we should schedule another podcast or a <laughs> webinar to talk about those issues. You're right. But anyway, so let's let's assume that we've got this successful teaming relationship. We've executed our teaming agreement. We've submitted our proposal to the government. The government loves the teaming um, partnership and the proposal and issues a prime contract to the prime contractor what happens next right so that's when the parties work on executing their subcontract and the subcontract is the binding contract that sets the requirements for performance of the contract and it governs all post-award obligations of the parties so when a contract is awarded many contractors believe that they can just use their teaming agreement uh, to control the working relationship moving forward but this I cannot put off uh, up enough red flags to say this is a misunderstanding of how these contracts work. And if there's ever a dispute that happens down the road and they do happen, even when both parties are acting in good faith, that teaming agreement is going to be problematic. So in order to have a binding agreement between the parties, you need a subcontract after award that tells the parties how they are to perform. Now, there are some ways around this. The parties can execute subcontracts before award, but there are risks there that, again, as I mentioned before, the contract obligations might change at some point. The award might be different than originally contemplated. So the safest, the most effective thing to do is to enter into your official subcontract after award. These subcontracts are often really detailed. They will include a scope of work that sets boundaries for the party's work obligations. For instance, on a personal services contract, the specific employment positions that each party will fill might be delineated. Going back to my original example of the IT contract, the subcontractor may be allotted five full-time equivalent help desk positions, while the prime contractor will be filling four software developer positions and whatnot. This is the type of breakdown you will often see in a subcontract, along with the price that the subcontractor will be paid for the work, the price that is going to be charged to the government, perhaps. The goal is to avoid any confusion about who is filling positions, what the party's obligations are, and how the contract is going to be fulfilled to best provide the government with the services that were just awarded. So, Matt, I've got to jump in again with another rule relating to these small business set-asides, this one relating to the actual work share. Before we were talking about, or I was mentioning the ostensible subcontractor rule, which relates to eligibility to bid on and be awarded those small business set-asides. Well, there's another rule that should be kept in mind for performance of small business set-aside contracts that government contractors need to know. This is the limitations on subcontracting rule. As the name implies, the rule limits the amount of the prime contract in terms of dollar value that can be subcontracted. The rule generally requires that the small business prime contractor perform work that results in the prime contractor receiving at least half of the contract revenues, unless the prime contractor is subcontracting to another small business, again, a similarly situated small business. So it's very important as a matter of actually carrying out the responsibilities and performing the work on the contract that the prime contractor is paying attention to any requirements under that prime contract to limit the amount of work that it's passing through to its subcontractor to make sure that it's compliant with this rule that applies to most set-aside contracts. So something to keep in mind for any new businesses that might be uh, bidding on and being awarded set-aside contracts. 
And I think one really important um, part of your note is that it's contract revenues that guide that number. So, you know, the subcontractor might have more positions on the contract ultimately, and that could be okay if they're lower paid positions, like a janitorial contract, for instance, if most of the manual labor is done by the subcontractor, that's okay. But if the high level positions that are generating more revenues on the contract are covered by the prime contractor, you might get to that 50% mark. So really important to think about the revenues that are being generated from a given contract and how they're going to be distributed between or how the work share is going to be distributed to make sure that you hit that 50% mark. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also really important to think about how some contracts require as a default that the limitations on subcontracting are met for each year of performance, not just the, the contract as a whole. And so understanding the requirements of your contract is, is a really important thing on the front end of performance and where that subcontract requires, or where the prime contract requires something, you got to make sure your subcontract and um, is compatible with that. Um, so additionally, stepping away from performance and employees for a second, that subcontractor also will typically include how invo- invoices are to be submitted, um, what those invoices must include, when payments are be- to be made, who is allowed to communicate with the government about performance, um, and other important details. They're also likely to flow down certain obligations from the prime contract. So, for instance, um, in many prime contracts, you're going to see a flow down provision that Although the prime contract doesn't include this written requirements of a federal acquisition regulation, it might have a reference in the prime contract and it's incorporated. You need to flow those down to the subcontract to make sure that everybody's on the same page, because ultimately that's what a subcontract is about, uh, managing the expectations of the parties so that they understand what they're supposed to do um, to get the boat home. So let me give you a real world example of how a subcontract can cause problems for a prime contract. The prime contractor is required to follow the terms of the prime contract. So understanding that document and incorporating its terms into the subcontract is really important. Let's give an example where the prime contract requires the prime contractor to submit all invoices for a month's work within five days of the end of that month. Seems like a pretty standard, pretty simple provision to comply with. Get me your details. I'll send them to the government and we'll get paid. But what happens if the subcontract says that the subcontractor invoices must be submitted to the prime contractor within 10 days of the end of the month? There's just a break between what the government's expectations are with the prime and what the prime's expectations are with the subcontractor. So the subcontractor could be in compliance with the subcontract and force the prime contractor out of compliance with the prime contract. So it's really important to pay attention to those details and to follow them really closely, because ultimately, in some contracts, if the government, um, if you're not meeting an expectation of the government, the government doesn't have to pay for invoices that are rejected due to lateness. Now, there are exceptions to that. And maybe I'm giving a far-fetched example, but there are lots of times when there can be a conflict between what parties have agreed to in a subcontract and what the ultimate obligations on the prime contract are. So it's really important to pay attention to that. Yeah, Matt, just to follow up a little bit on that point about paying attention to those prime contract terms and what's flowed down, and it, it is an important point that federal procurements are governed by the federal acquisition regulation you referred to the FAR. That's what we call that federal acquisition regulations, which is a very dense, very long and very complicated set of regulations. They dictate how procurements must be carried out by agencies and how contracts must be performed, governing both the agency's performance as well as uh, including clauses that must be included in prime contracts that prime contractors must follow. There are hundreds of FAR clauses imposing these requirements on prime contractors When the clauses are included in the prime contract, for instance, requiring drug testing in certain situations or setting minimum hourly wages, requiring compliance with the Buy American Act, or that the prime deliver certain data rights to the government, depending on the type of prime contract that's at issue, 
You know, there's just all sorts of requirements that could be included in there. Well, many of these FAR clauses, either by their terms, are required to be passed down to subcontractors in any subcontract that the prime contractor has, or the prime contractor may not be required to include them, but they really should flow down those requirements to protect themselves and make sure that they are able to comply with the prime contract. So for instance, if the prime contractor uh, is required to provide certain data rights to the government um, and the subcontractor is working on a portion of the work that relates to the creation of those data rights, the work that relates to the data rights, then the prime contractor needs to make sure that it will be obtaining through its subcontract the right to those data rights that it can then transfer on to the government as required under the prime contract. Sometimes we see that the the prime contractor will fail to include those sorts of data rights or flow down those FAR clauses to its subcontractors. And then it can be stuck in a sticky situation uh, where it's not able to comply with all the terms of the prime contract. So it's very important to ensure that you've incorporated the appropriate FAR clauses into your subcontract or that you've potentially limited the FAR clauses that apply from the subcontractor's perspective because you don't want to take on more obligations than you're required to. Some of those FAR clauses are mandatory and it doesn't make sense to try to fight against having them incorporated, but others you may not be required to include. You know, And if you have questions, it makes sense to get legal assistance to review the subcontract and see, okay, what FAR clauses can I accept and which ones should I push back on? Yeah, that's a great point. If if you haven't heard us hammering this home loud and clear enough, I, I got to wrap it up and say your subcontract should be detailed. It should be tailored to the prime contract. It should be negotiated in good faith so that you understand exactly what you're signing up for. Your teaming partner knows exactly what you're signing up for. And everybody can manage expectations because the last thing you want is for people to be operating on different pages or with different expectations because um, on a multi-million dollar federal contract, it can be very dangerous if people aren't on the same page. So we've gone through team agreements, we've gone through subcontracts, but those aren't the only types of teaming arrangements that you can enter into um, when you're a federal contractor. Jackie, can you talk a little bit about some of these alternate um, opportunities for teaming with other government contractors? Yeah. So another popular avenue for teaming in the government contracting world is to form a joint venture with one or more other companies. Generally speaking, a joint venture is a business arrangement in which two or more entities agree to pool their resources together and share the risks to accomplish a specific limited purpose. The joint venture can be structured as a partnership or LLC or a corporation, though we tend to see the LLC form most commonly. A joint venture can be populated, meaning the JV has its own employees who carry out the work, or unpopulated, meaning that the JV relies on the employees of the JV partners to carry out the work. Any companies can join together to form a joint venture to bid on a given procurement. However, the general rule is that when companies form a strategic alliance like a joint venture and have an identity of interest with each other, they are considered affiliated. So the default rule is that forming a joint venture will give rise to affiliation between the partners to the joint venture. If you want to use a joint venture to pursue a small business set-aside opportunity, there are special rules that the Small Business Administration, or SBA, sets that you need to make sure that you follow so that your JV will be eligible to bid on those small business set-asides. For instance, the joint venture must be evidenced in writing. So generally, you need to have a joint venture agreement. And the joint venture needs to do business in its own name, meaning that the joint venture needs to be the prime contractor who's entering into that contract with the government. If it exists as a separate entity, it may not be populated with individuals intended to perform the awarded contracts. SBA requires that those JVs be unpopulated. And since JVs are intended to be limited purpose entities, the JV may only submit offers for a period of two years from the date of the JV's first award. SBA doesn't want to see these JVs 
being used for the long term since they're supposed to be serve a limited purpose. So there's this two-year rule where from the date of the JV's first award, you can bid as much as you want over a two-year period. But after that two-year mark, you're not allowed to use the JV anymore. You can still form different joint ventures with the same teaming partner. But after a certain amount of time, SBA will look at that relationship and see if the joint venture partners, even through different joint ventures, have too close of an identity of interest that they should be affiliated. Also, in order for a joint venture to submit an offer as a small business, that can be done in two ways. Either each joint venture partner must qualify as a small business under the NAICS code that's assigned to the contract, or the joint venture must consist of a small business and its SBA-approved mentor. I'll talk a little bit about the mentor-protege program in a couple minutes here. For certain types of set-asides, such as set-asides for 8A business development program participants, women-owned small businesses, service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, or hub-zone firms, there are also other requirements as to what the joint venture agreement between the parties must include, such as that the small business must have majority control over the joint venture. The work the joint venture itself and each joint venture partner must perform and the profit split between the partners, which must be commensurate with the work that each partner performs. SBA approval of the joint venture agreement is only required for 8A sole source procurements. So this is the, the agreement needs to exist between the parties laying out what the terms are going to be of forming that joint venture and how the work is going to be carried out so that all the parties are on the same page. And it needs to check off the requirements for SBA, but SBA isn't going to be reviewing and approving each of those agreements most of the time. If the requirements aren't met, SBA will consider the joint venture partners to be affiliates and therefore aggregate their revenues in determining the JV's size, meaning that the JV may not qualify as a small business for a given procurement. So it's important if you are interested in uh, setting up a joint venture, you know, pay attention to is that joint venture going to bid on a, a small business set aside? If not, you know, you can use a joint venture as you want, team with whoever you want, and it's still a good idea to have an agreement in place that outlines the party's intentions and how the work will be carried out, but it's not required in order to be eligible to bid. But if it is a small business set aside, be aware that these requirements are out there, uh, that they need to be met for your joint venture to be eligible. Now I want to talk a little bit about how uh, forming a joint venture offers benefits compared to a traditional prime and subcontractor relationship. For instance, a minority joint venture member who owns up to 49% of the joint venture can exert more control over contract performance to protect its interests than it would be able to acting as a subcontractor in a prime sub relationship because it's part owner of that joint venture. So it can have more say over the joint venture could also avoid any perceived stigma that might be associated with being a subcontractor to its competitors, seen as more of an equal. Also, the government would be able to look to the resources of each joint venture partner to perform the work instead of just holding the prime contractor liable for performance. Joint ventures are also beneficial on small business set-aside opportunities because they permit a minority JV member to participate on the set-aside contract it might not otherwise be eligible for. And agencies are required to consider the capabilities, past performance, experience, business systems, and certifications of all joint venture partners. Whereas if two companies bid together as a prime and subcontractor, the agency is not necessarily required to take the sub's past performance into consideration in evaluating the proposal, as we discussed previously. So there is that benefit there when you form as a joint venture to having that past performance and experience taken into consideration. Joint ventures are also useful for small businesses that are trying to retain their small business size status because of the way that revenues are counted for joint venture partners. You attribute to each joint venture partner only the revenues for the work that the partner performs for the joint venture. When you're dealing with a prime sub relationship, if a small business is the prime contractor, well, really, if it's small or large, the prime contractor counts all of the revenues it receives from the government towards its own revenues, even if it passes down a significant percentage of those revenues to a subcontractor. So there's a benefit in the way that those joint venture revenues will be split between the joint venture partners. But it's also important to keep in mind that joint ventures do present some risks. 
the lead contractor is going to give up substantial control. The joint venture agreement may require approval from both partners to take certain actions, for instance. So you have to be willing to give up that level of control versus being a prime contractor where really you're the one in charge. The government may view the joint venture as lacking a clear point of contact, which could raise concerns about control and accountability versus knowing that the prime contractor is the the one party that the government can rely on uh, is their point of contact and is the one responsible for the work. A joint venture also tends to be a longer and deeper commitment than traditional teaming, uh, given the pooling of the resources between the JV partners. So it can be somewhat more difficult to break away if there are disagreements or disputes between the parties. The joint venture parties become uh, jointly and sever- severally liable to third parties for the acts of the JV partners. So there's more risk involved as well. Again, another reason why it's very important to do your due diligence before entering into a JV with another partner. And if the JV agreement is not clearly written, there may be confusion about how the work is supposed to be split between the partners. So as Matt was talking about earlier, it's very important to have as much detail as you can in that uh, teaming arrangement, that written agreement. So those are some aspects, you know, high level overview about joint ventures, benefits and risks that they present. And the last topic that we want to talk about today is about the uh, mentor protege opportunities that exist in the federal government. The federal government has a number of mentor protege programs that pair established companies with small businesses to help them gain skills and compete. The largest and most popular mentor protege program is SBAs, but the Department of Defense also has an established mentor protege program, and many other agencies have their programs for their procurements within those agencies as well. So there's a number of them that you can look at, but I'm primarily going to talk here about SBA's program. Under SBA's mentor-protege program, the mentor and protege companies will enter into a mentor-protege agreement, which SBA must approve, which identifies various forms of financial, technical, and management assistance that the mentor will provide to the protege over the three-year term of the relationship. That relationship, it it must last for, the parties have to agree to the mentor-protege relationship for at least a year. The first term is set for three years. Um, The parties can uh, dissolve the relationship after that one-year period if they desire to, but otherwise it'll last for a three-year term, and it can be renewed for a second three-year term if SBA approves the renewal. The main benefit from the mentor mentor protege relationship is that the two companies are exempt from affiliation based on the assistance provided under the mentoring relationship, meaning that they can form joint ventures together that are eligible to compete on set-aside contracts without regard to the size of the mentor. So in these programs, the protege has to be a small business, and the mentor can be a small or a large business, but they their revenues will not be combined in determining the size of the joint venture and its eligibility to compete. So that's a really great benefit, a great reason to look into this program, as well as the protege, obviously, getting the assistance from this established company, um, assistance about how to better compete in the federal government uh, realm. So the mentor and the protege are able to subcontract with one another. And a significant benefit for the mentor is that it may own up to 40% of the protege. So that can be a, a big incentive for many potential mentors. Generally, a protege may only have one mentor at a time and only two mentor relationships ever. So it's extremely important to choose a good partner who will actually deliver on the intended assistance. We do sometimes see mentors who don't really live up to what they've agreed to in the agreement which you know, can be a, a frustrating situation. And there is some ability to nullify an agreement and go find a different mentor instead, but uh, that ability is somewhat limited. So again, coming back full circle, very important to do your due diligence up front and make sure that you're finding a good teaming partner. A mentor may be, as I mentioned, a large or a small business, And a firm can even be another protege while it also serves as a mentor at the same time. So um, you may have a firm that serves as a protege with a very large business as its mentor, but it could also serve as a mentor to perhaps a new uh, government contractor, a a very small business and a new firm just entering the government contracting world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may be able to serve as a mentor to that company. 
Generally, mentors may only have one protege at a time, though they could have up to three as long as there's no adverse impact on any protege and the protégés won't be competing with one another. There's no limit on the number of protégés a mentor can have over its lifetime because SBA wants to encourage firms to serve as mentors and help develop these companies. So as you're starting out in the government contracting world, looking at these mentor-protege programs, uh, they can offer a great opportunity for you to help develop your business and get assistance on the financial side, the technical side, the management side, you know, learning about the government contracting world and how it works and the business systems that you need to have in place and help develop that, um, help develop your business development and your proposal support system. So this is a really good area to look into and seeing if you can find a good mentor to help develop your, your business in the government contracting world. So Jack and I have given you a lot of information today. We, we understand we probably could have talked for three hours. So we understand that there's a, there's a lot that's probably swimming through your brains. You can reach out to both Jackie or, or myself um, or both of us at the same time to answer any specific questions. Our contact information is on the Polaro Mazza website, which is available to you. I think I just want to wrap up by kind of giving an analogy, you know, very rarely, at least these days, does you know a baseball player get called up to the majors immediately. They go through their farm team, they learn the ropes in uh, rookie ball or single A or double A or triple A. And then after a few years, after getting their feet wet, they sort of have, have made it and they get called up to a big league team. Looking at government contracting when you're on the outside, when you've been in the pri- private sector for your company's entire duration, it can be a little intimidating to, to think about going through that sort of process where you have to build up the experience to be successful. But I hope that we've been able to reveal to you today that there are options that help in that on-ramp. The on-ramp. Sort of the single A, double A ball might be taking small subsections of subcontracts and getting your um, feet wet in government contracting before you step in and take a larger portion of a subcontract or you become a prime contractor. Once you finally feel comfortable with those opportunities and federal government contracting in general, as Jackie has mentioned, you have these joint venture possibilities. And as I mentioned, you have these subcontracting opportunities to really sort of expand your business and, and do what you weren't able to do in the private sector, which is tap into what amounts to be an endless resource. So I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. Jackie, again, thanks for joining me. It's always a pleasure um, on these podcasts and webinars with you. Please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. um, And please enjoy the rest of this podcast series. Um, It's a lot of helpful information. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is a Paliro Maza production. And music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.